Welcome to episode 220 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'm sitting here with Walt and Marquez, excited to share with you what we have in store this week. Our featured guest, Seamus McGraw, American journalist and author, will be talking to Seamus about how to discuss hot-button issues, today's national political climate, genuflecting in front of the altar of ideology, the balkanization of the media, and many, many other fascinating, important areas of discourse will be embraced for certain. We also have another skillfully crafted essay by our very own Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. We have an EW essay by yours truly, too. Dr. Pavis's essay, more importantly, titled Svengali. Mayan titled Talk With Me. We also have a poem called The Scoundrel about a politician in Washington, D.C. We also have, as always is the case, to share with you several great tunes. Without further ado, and that's Marquez sneezing, let's get to it. Episode 220 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
talk with me. I sense that there is a trap door into the abyss of mean-spirited dissonance within range of every step I take. Given the half-baked directives and policy implementations concocted and churned out nearly every day. And I wonder where are my colleagues, friends, and compatriots to notice and to say, hey, what's going on, Marvin Gaye? We instead, all too often, look down or look away and get consumed into the fray day after day. Champions of freedom and justice, integrity and courage. Where are we? Where are they? Fear and cynicism, narrow-minded self-absorption in place of a belief in the collective and to the true rights and value of each individual. We don't talk with each other anymore. Zero sum and even the score to these motivations I implore no more. God damn it, no more. Woo! Well now, Hazy Davy got really hurt 
He ran under the lake in just his socks and a shirt. Me and Crazy Janie was making love in the dirt, singing our birthday song. Janie said it was time to go, so we closed our eyes and said goodbye to Gypsy Angel Row. Felt so right Together we Hey, Seamus McGraw. How's it going? How are you? Good. E.W. Conundrum here from Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Nice to hear your voice. You too. Before we get started, let me give our listeners some uh, background information, all right? Sure. We have uh, Mr. Seamus McGraw, an American journalist and author, on the program this week. And uh, he has received the Freedom of Information Award from the Associated Press Managing Editors as well as honors from the Casey Foundation and the Society of Professional Journalists. He has written for Playboy, for Reader's Digest, for Radar Magazines, and the Forward Magazine as well. In 2011, Random House published his book entitled The End of Country. He is married with four children and lives in Winona Lakes, Pennsylvania, my neck of the woods here in Scranton, not go. too far. And I'm sure, I know you have several other books, or a couple other books at least, too, and uh, we'll talk about those, I suppose. Thank you for being on the program. My pleasure. My pleasure. One quick thing, though. Nobody calls me uh, Mr. McGraw. The only time anybody ever calls me Mr. McGraw, they're trying to serve me with court papers. <laughs> I won't do that against her. I don't want to give you that there kind you of go. trauma. <laughs> um, well, Seamus, then, I want, to, uh, I want to get right into one of the things you've been talking about a lot lately from what I understand, what I'm hearing, is um, how to discuss hot-button bu issues in you know, your neighborhood, in your community, in society at large, things like climate change, whether it exists or not, uh, fracking, whether it's good or not, and so on. How are you doing that? How can you do that? Well, yeah, that's actually what the, what the last book is about. The last book is called Betting the Farm on a Drought. Uh, stories from the front lines of climate change. And in that book, what I did was I, I traveled around the country and I talked to uh, I talked to ranchers in Texas. I talked to farmers in Illinois. I talked to fishermen off the coast of New Jersey. I talked to uh, outdoorsmen up in uh, Montana. Um, I talked to um, I, I talked to. Uh, fundamentalist Christians. I talked to people across the board who were ideologically, politically, in some cases even religiously not predisposed to believe in the concept of anthropogenic global climate change, but who were dealing with it nonetheless. And what I came away with was this, was the idea that we have this tendency to f in all of our debates, and it's particularly true now, to force other people to genuflect before the altar of our ideology, whatever it needs to be. Uh, you know, I'm a good old-fashioned dyed-in-the-wool liberal. Um, I've got friends who are <sighs> really stiff-necked conservatives, and when we turn around and focus primarily on 
the issues that divide us. We get nowhere. But when we talk about the, the, the mutual concerns we share, I'll give you an example. Um, the, the title of the book comes from a guy out in Illinois. The guy is as conservative as you could possibly be and is very skeptical about the idea of anthropogenic global climate change, the idea that we are actually affecting the environment. In fact, this guy did not even want to meet with me, okay, because in his words, he had never met a liberal before. <laughs> but he, he, he finally broke down and agreed to, agreed to meet with me. And when he did, I learned a tremendous amount from this guy. This guy had... He had never ventured more than a few miles from his farm in southern Illinois. He had made it through um, a couple of really severe flooding years that imperiled his future. Uh, they had they had so severely damaged uh, his his crops um, that the guy was just barely hanging on. Now, even though the national uh, the, the, the NOAA and, and, and basically all of the people that, that, that turn around and watch these things um, hadn't seen it coming. Um, in fact, one of them, a guy from NOAA at one point turned around and told me that if I had stood in a field in March of uh, 2012 in southern Illinois, I would not have seen the drought that came that year coming. This guy did see it. This guy did see it coming because of his understanding of the land. Now, this is a guy who had already begun to turn around and alter the way he was farming because of the severity of the weather. So what he decided to do was to turn around and plant um, about three weeks early, plant corn about three weeks early, uh, figuring that if he could get the crop in before the worst of the drought hit, he might be able to turn around and recoup a profit. Here's the problem. Um, the bean counters in St. Louis and in Kansas City, the guys who underwrite crop insurance, mm -hmm. they don't like it when you plant early. So for him to turn around and do this, to, for him to turn around and respond to his understanding of the land, an understanding that was born into him and honed through, at that point, 63 years of living, for him to turn around and do that, it was a gamble. If he was right, if he was right, if the alterations that he was making in response to a changing climate, even though he didn't acknowledge it, were correct, he'd be able to save his farm. The only thing he had to give to his daughters and, and the only thing he's ever had himself, if he was wrong, he'd lose everything. He would lose everything. Now, you got to read the book to figure out how it turned out for this guy. <laughs> But when we were sitting down talking, um, it became something other than an interview. See, the, the reality is, and this is true across the culture at this point, is that if I know where you stand on an issue like climate change, or I know where you stand on an issue like fracking. I probably know with an alarming degree of accuracy where you stand on five or six or seven or eight other hot button issues in the culture. Mm -hmm. Yep. If I know where you stand on fracking, I know where you stand on guns. If I know where you stand on fracking, I probably know where you stand on abortion. I probably know where you stand on gay marriage. And that, to me, is an absolute tragedy. It's a bunch of clubs bunch that of, we join, right? That, to me, exactly. What it is, is it's a tribal identity. It's a tribal identity. But if you sit down and you talk to a guy, his name is Ethan Cox, a guy like Ethan Cox, or you talk to a rancher like Joe Leathers out in Guthrie, Texas, or you talk to the fishermen off the coast of New Jersey, okay, and you talk about individuals, and you talk about people, instead of about issues. You find that a guy like Ethan, 
uh, who thinks, for example, that abortion is one of the great evils um, in our society and believes that with all of his heart, still has compassion and tolerance. When you talk about guns with a guy like Ethan, I mean, he keeps a two twenty two at, at, at the ready in order to plink a coyote in case it tries to get a calf. But, you know, you know what? He says to me he'd gladly give that up if he thought for a moment that it would stop the kind of things, the kind of tragedies that we've seen across this country over the last however many years. You mean like, uh, he doesn't like be- major well, gun violence on humans, is that what you mean? Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> You know, and he, he, I mean, the guy even laughed when I, you know, I'm an avid hunter myself. I, I, I hunt exclusively with a flintlock. I, I use the gun that the Second Amendment uh, explicitly gives me the right to carry. You're a purist. Um, You're a purist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that. But, you know, I mean, he, he even chuckled at that. The, the reality is, is that there is room for connections. Now, that has become tremendously more complicated in, I would say, the past 18 months. In the past 18 months, the pendulum, I think, has swung just wildly in the opposite direction, in the direction toward division, in the direction toward hostility between camps. It's become more difficult for us to turn around and, and... communicate with each other that makes it even more urgent that we do that that makes it even more urgent that we do that that we try why do you think it's become and, more more difficult in the last 18 months i, I can i it, from my point of view mm-hmm. it's a couple of things it's the balkanization of the media and what i mean by the balkanization of the media is that We now have at our disposal all of the information in the world. All of it. We're drowning in it. We're drowning in it. And rather than what what we've ended up doing is because there's so much and it's so impenetrable. And because we have broken up virtually every sense of larger community and larger purpose what we end up doing is we end up retreating behind our ideological barricades i can go an entire day and unless i try google will make sure that i only see information that either agrees with me Okay, or is presented as being a ludicrous example of how extreme the other side is. And why do you think and they so do that? Well, what's that? The what you, what, what, what's their motivation? They do that? Yeah. Because it drives traffic. Because it drives traffic and because we haven't turned around. We have not. This happens all the time in cultures, in cultures doesn't it? That our technology outpaces our ability to ethically deal with it. Mm-hmm. There I is can... no ethics of community in an algorithm there is no ethics of community in an algorithm it is simply intended to drive as many eyes to a particular page as you can possibly drive and so you target people based on their preferences and when you target your people not based on your preferences you need never encounter anything that challenges that and it becomes echo chambers it is an I will be frank, and I will be a little political, and as I said at the outset, I am a dyed-in-the-wool liberal. A guy came along who figured out how to exploit that. And we've been working on it for decades, but our new president of the United States has found how, has, has developed a way to masterfully exploit that. And to turn around and appeal specifically to about 40% of the population. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Um, And to effectively disenfranchise everybody else. That does not mean that within that 40%, there are still not people that we can find, that I can find common ground with. And I think that people who are concerned about issues like climate, concerned about issues like guns, concerned about issues like basic civil rights, can appeal to. 
Do you think, and I've had a lot of, I'm a, I'm a liberal as well, and, uh, you know, talking to a lot of my liberal friends, often we, we wonder if the 40 or so percent that you're talking about that support uh, President Trump, if they're willing or able to accept that they made a mistake. You know that. Well, you know, yeah, you know what? If I'm going to force them to genuflect before that altar, no. If I'm going to force them to genuflect before that altar, absolutely not. And why would they? Would you? No. Would, if, if, the, if, if the price of admission to a conversation is acknowledging that you have erred, that's not, that's, that's not a conversation. That's a forced confer- conversion. That's humiliating too, right? Yes, exactly. So yeah. why do that? Why do that? What do you achieve? You know, I tell this to my kids all the time. You know, you may be right, but you're probably no more than, than maybe 70% right about any given issue. So when you turn around and approach anybody, you approach them with humility. Right. Right. I, 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 totally I don't need them. Again, I do not need, I don't need Ethan Cox to acknowledge my virtue. I don't need Ethan Cox to acknowledge my wisdom. Because you know what? There's a lot I can learn from his virtue and his wisdom. And Ethan Cox, again, was the... The, the farmer in Illinois. Right. The guy who bet the farm on the drought. And gave the title of your book. And gave me the title of the book, right. <laughs> yeah, this is great. I mean, I think what you're talking about is, is very important. And as you mentioned, now more than ever, given that we and are... And it's becoming so, more difficult. And, yeah. and because it's becoming more difficult, it becomes even more important. Right. You know, uh, the harder it gets to do, the more crucial it becomes to, for us to do it. Well, you mentioned you're a liberal, so I guess climate change, you believe, as you already said, is definitely uh, influenced greatly by human behavior. Uh, you uh, fracking, where do you stand on that? People always ask me, I, you know, look, people always ask me if I'm for it or against it. And my answer is yes. Okay, I think it is the single dirtiest, deadliest, most destructive thing that we've done, except for everything else that we've done. Um, The reality is, the reality is, 34,000 people die every year as a result of coal. The reality is, it killed my great-grandfather in 1901, and it's killing people today. The reality is the United States has lowered its carbon out its carbon footprint by an amount equal or greater than the total carbon out- output of Great Britain where the uh, industrial revolution began and there are a couple of reasons for that but one of the largest reasons for that is frankly the shift to natural gas now it carries with it tremendous, tremendous downsides, tremendous, tremendous risks. It does turn around and release methane into the atmosphere, which is in the short term, much shorter term, uh, an even more pernicious uh, yes. substance when it comes to climate change. Yeah. It does create spills. It does create, in some cases, contamination of uh, water supplies, from mostly from things like drifting methane and that sort of thing. Um, done correctly, we could mitigate some of those problems. We could meet some of those challenges. But it would require us to step back from our ideological barricades. It would require, quite frankly, a level of government intervention that in this environment, with this terribly divided electorate and a tendency to turn around and put people in government who don't believe in government, 
It would require them to recognize that they need to use the carrots and sticks, the levers of government taxes, primarily, in order to augment regulation and in order to affect regulation, literally using tax penalties to get these guys to do what we want. And there are tons of historic, historic paradigms for that. It also requires the left, my side of the aisle, to recognize that there are economic benefits to this that could be better exploited, that there are environmental benefits to this that could be better exploited. But if our only option is to discuss it in binary terms. Are you for it or are you against it? If our tribal identity depends on are you for it or are you against it, we never get there. As I always point out, there are an infinite number of numbers between zero and one, but all of our conversations are binary. I like that. I like that. Seamus McGraw, ladies and gentlemen, here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours, talking about how we talk with one another in uh, regards to some of the really tumultuous challenges we face as citizens of this country and in the world. And I like, I like, uh, I like what you've been sharing with us, Seamus. And we, we have about... I'm having uh, fun. Yeah, I can tell. Me too. It's fun to listen. Um, we have about five minutes to go, so I want to hit a couple other things. Before, we go, before I forget... Why don't you share with the listeners uh, some contact information, social media information, so they can find out you know, how to buy a book or go see you speak somewhere or what have you? Well, my books are all available on, uh, on Amazon. I'm not doing a lot of talks at the moment uh, for the next several weeks, uh, be- only because I'm at the tail end of a new book, which is about water and it's about Texas, but it's not really about water and it's not really about Texas. What it's really about is about these same fractures, about these same cultural divisions uh, playing out in a place that, uh, the way I put it, is if New York and California are the egos of America, Texas is its id, and there's a lot we can learn about Texas. Uh, but I am available. I'll tell you, can I, can I, can I bore you with a quick story? Sure. A few years back, um, the um, uh, American University uh, made uh, end of country required reading for freshmen coming in. And, you know, it was I got my favorite review. My favorite review ever of that book, and it wasn't the New York Times, and it wasn't uh, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, it wasn't Booklist, it wasn't any of those, it was a tweet, and it was a tweet from one of the uh, students there, and what the tweet was, was, and I quote, Seamus McGraw is a douche lord and should never have written a book. (laughs) And I told the audience, I, all of the, the assembled freshmen, I think there were like 2,000 people in the room. I said, you know what? That's my favorite review, and I'll tell you why it's my favorite review. It's my favorite review because it was immediate. When I was 19 or 20 years old and somebody made me read a book I really didn't want to read, about three guys in Boris's bar in South Wilkes-Barre knew about it. <laughs> We don't live in that world anymore. So the world we live in is completely different. The world we live in, there is no wall between the, the guy who writes a book and the guy who reads it. There's no wall whatsoever. And when I was a kid, a book was an artifact. It was uh, something you put on a shelf. It was the end of a conversation. The truth is, <sighs> betting the farm on a drought grew out of conversations I've had with people that started with betting the farm. And this new book, which is tentatively titled uh, The Last Straw, grew out of conversations we had out of betting the farm. And so it's in my interest, my interest as a writer, to make sure that that wall is removed completely. I find myself railing against walls a lot these days, but that wall in particular is one I never want to see re-erected. 
And so that's why whenever I talk to groups, whenever I'm on the radio, I give people my 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 email address, which is Seamus M S E A M U S M at PTD.net. I give them my Facebook, Seamus McGraw on Facebook, Seamus McGraw on Twitter. My home phone number is 570-588-6000, and you've got my Skype number. Join the conversation. It's not just me. These Because the, the antithesis of what I said earlier about the balkanization of the media and the balkanization of social media, mm-hmm. You can swim against that tide. And so if you join me on Facebook or you join me on Twitter, you're not just joining me. You're joining all the people in the book, in these books as well, because they're part of this ongoing conversation. And you're leading us all in some place. So that's that's if I want to leave anybody with one point, it's that it's this is an ongoing conversation. Join it. You know, join me, please. You know, I need to hear from you, but join the conversation. And let me just ask this. Why is it so important to you that this conversation occur and continue? Because you know what? These are dark times. There's no question about it. These are dark times. But even still, I'm going to be 58 this year. Even still. This is a far better world right now than the one I was born into. The one I was born into, okay, is a world that would have hunted down my gay child. The world I was born into was a world of segregated water fountains. The world I was born into was a world where rivers burst into flame in in Ohio. The world I was born into was one where the mountaintops in Maine were going bald because of sulfur. I live in a better world today than that. And the reason I live in a better world than that is because we have engaged. And now we have at our disposal a tool that can divide us, but it can also bring us together and lead us further toward an even better world. So that's why. Perfect. Seamus McGraw, American journalist and author. Thank you for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I really enjoyed talking with you. My pleasure. I had a ball. Take care, sir. Take care. You too.
guns and money Guns and money. <clears throat> Send lawyers, guns and money. Bengali, a depressed former coal town, boasts a surprising number of luminaries in the arts and letters. Some shone brighter than others, some flared out and faded away. The name of J. Grubb Alexander, born in 1887 in our town, and dead of pneumonia in 1932 at the age of 44 in Los Angeles, may not stir the least bit of recognition today but he was a formidable character, and he has a firm, small spot in the history of movies to go along with his plot in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Starting out as a civil engineer, he made the unlikely jump to vaudeville sketchwriter and songwriter. Democracy, that raggedy tune, from 1918, is one of his songs. Not exactly over there, by George M. Cohan, or Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning, by Irving Berlin. But it had its moment. He became a scenarist for silent movies, and he wrote over 97 films, most of the silence now lost, smoothly making the transition from silence to talkies, a treacherous one for writers and actors. See Singing in the Rain. For the silence, he wrote adaptations of Jack London's Sea Wolf and Herbin Melville's Moby Dick. Serials like The Chinese Pursuit, the second Charlie Chan flick, and The Trail of the Octopus, and The Man Who Laughs, a landmark horror film adapted from a Victor Hugo novel and starring Conrad Veidt. In Germany, Veidt was in the classic the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. In America, he became a go-to Nazi, most memorably as Colonel Strausser in Casablanca. Alexander wrote an early musical in 1930, Sweet Kitty Belairs, and shortly before his death, two vehicles for John Barrymore, The Mad Genius and Svengali. In Svengali, Barrymore plays a shabby voice teacher who can literally mesmerize students and his fellow and equally shabby bohemians, usually into giving him money. He falls in love with one unfortunate beauty, played by Marion Marsh, and molds her into a singing sensation with his dark, hypnotic arts. It all ends in tragedy. Svengali can make her sing, but can't make her love him. Barrymore gave a touchingly hammy performance, his eyes burning into his young loves and the audiences. It's hard not to read the haunting tale in light of Barrymore's life. A notorious alcoholic, like his friend W.C. Fields, he was a careening cautionary tale of charisma profligately spent and talent extravagantly wasted. Like Svengali, he burned with a fierce fire and ended up burning himself out. As it happens, Barrymore himself was the subject of the final work of another of our town's favorite sons. Jason Miller, actor, playwright, and legendary drinker, was famous for a time in the world 
outside our town. Within it, his name is a byword for getting out, moving up, and, unfortunately, coming back. By his early thirties, he had won a Tony Award and Pulitzer Prize for that championship season, which tells the sad tale of a reunion of a high school basketball team brimming with secrets and resentments and sorrow. And he was nominated for an Oscar for his performance as Father Damien Karras in The Exorcist. As Father Karras, a faith-doubting, brooding Jesuit who takes on the devil, he is forever enshrined in movie history. In every compilation of horror movie clips, there's Jason being vomited on by the possessed and foul-mouthed Linda Blair. By his death in his early 60s, he was a local character, running and acting in a local theater company, and sailing from downtown bar to downtown bar and from drink to drink. Although he had accomplished much so young, he was a poster boy for unfilled promise, which was the subject of his major play, as his New York Times obituary noted. In a TV movie, he played F. Scott Fitzgerald opposite Tuesday Weld Zelda. One alcoholic writer playing another alcoholic writer in a story of talent washed away, promise unkept, and elusive second acts. Then again, Fitzgerald had his great Gatsby and Jason his championship season. He also played a more staid Miller, Arthur, in another TV movie, Marilyn, The Untold Story. I saw Jason when he performed his one-man play, Barrymore's Ghost. Whenever I saw him on stage late in life, I was most impressed that he could memorize lines, even his own. He had a rich voice, a striking presence, and soulful eyes, like Barrymore, and like Barrymore playing Svengali. And Jason was a kind of benign Svengali, a generous and supportive colleague and mentor, a friend to all, and a mystery to many, including, perhaps, himself. I interviewed him for a local paper once when he was working on his Barrymore play. We met in the lobby of a once-abandoned train station turned swanky hotel. A polite waiter hovered, continually refilling our coffees with whiskey. Everyone took care of Jason, and Jason returned the favor just by being Jason. I asked him about squandered talent, about Fitzgerald and Barrymore. Why make a judgment? Maybe they did all they could. Maybe that's all they had to give, Jason said. He leaned back in his leather chair and sipped his coffee and whiskey. Beside me here beneath the blue 
Dollops of green grass fall atop my shoes as I walk through the days of this early spring, thinking about the absurdity, the contempt, and the astronomical-sized ego of Paul Ryan as he lies out his ass to the American people. What a scoundrel. What a scoundrel. What a scoundrel. Gimme, 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 gimme that swing. Gimme that swing. Gimme that swing. Gimme, 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 gimme that swing. Gimme that swing.
there you have it. Episode 220 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks that made this episode possible. First and foremost, our new friend, very inspiring and uh, quite knowledgeable, earnest individual, Seamus McGraw, American journalist and author. Thank you so much for talking with us this week. We also like to thank our associate producer and uh, resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. Another, another fine, fine piece of work. Thank you, sir. I also like to thank these wonderful musical artists. Alabama Shakes, Bruce Springsteen, Warren Zevon, Ella Fitzgerald, Sissy Redgwick, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. It's wonderful having you with us each and every week. And again, the listenership in Kenya, and I'm not joking, keeps going up. I am pleasantly surprised. Also, listenership across this continent and uh, the globe, actually, is going up for Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Uh, that's, that's exciting. And I uh, hope I'm doing a good enough job to justify more people tuning in. I think so. I'm doing my darndest. Have a great week. Talk with you soon.